Good morning. Hey, let's try that again. Good morning. Wow, I like that. I like that. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you that uh, you drew each of us here this morning to feed upon your word. So would you be pleased through your spirit to be with the teacher and the hearers of your word and that you would make everything uh, that comes from the teacher's lips uh, that which is edifying to each of us and that which gives you glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, okay, recap real quick. We are on lesson four of picturing heaven for your soul. Um, bad news for some of you, good news for others. Uh, we're not going to finish today. So we're going to, we'll have one more week. Um, so, recap. Lesson one, we, we covered mindset. We're going to speak a lot about mindset. We didn't much last week. We're not going to speak much about it at all today. But we will come back to mindset, and it will drill down even further than what we did when we talked about Paul's mindset. Because our last class will be on the third eyewitness, which is Jesus. Lesson two, we covered Paul's vivid vision. And again, because Paul was given a vision but not permitted to say anything about it, we had to work backwards, reverse engineer the vision to see how his experience in heaven affected his ability to endure all the hardships that he encountered. Uh, last week, we covered part one of John's, uh, the Apostle John's vision, and that was uh, on items that, things that won't be present in heaven. In today's class, we're going to cover the second half of John's vision, which is what he describes will be in heaven. And, and so we're going to cover that. And then we will wrap up next week, Lord willing, with Jesus. And I will tell you, it is the grand finale. And it's the hardest thing ever to teach this class and hold the most important piece and not let, let it out of the bag too much because obviously heaven is heaven is because where God is at. And so we, but we will deal with that in great detail. So now we're going to take a look at the Apostle John. And I'm going to read uh, some excerpts from, uh, from the book of Revelation. And then we'll come back and tie into those. So in Revelation 21, if you're reading along, it's uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 and then 22, 1 through 5. And, and basically, this is the text for this uh, week's lesson. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying 
nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and with sulfur, which is the second death. I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has need of and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honors of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then uh, on with chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. Also, on either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. These leaves of the tree were the he- for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Um, In studying this, in preparation, for those of you who may have missed the very first We're working through a series of uh, something that I started studying when I was ministering to my dying mom. And um, God gave me a much longer uh, span of time to minister to my mom, which meant I had to bone up. I had to uh, become more creative on how I could help apply Scripture or apply illustrations to help reinforce what scripture says so that my mom could do what? So she could release her, the grasp that the, the, uh, seeing world has on her. We started out with, with mindset. I know you guys will start getting tired of this, but that's okay. We have the seeing world and we have the unseen world. And of course, the whole premise of this is that what these illustrations point to 
is the fact of the unseen world is where faith comes in. Faith comes in in trusting in that which is not seen, but our heart of hearts tells us through faith that to be true. And so moving my mom from having a mindset that's focused on the horizontal, on that which is seen, was the challenge was to move her over to putting her faith more and letting go of all of the fear that, that came with that. And so it, it's you know kind of a challenge when we came to this part because my mom did not spend a lot of time in God's word. And um, she was a believer, but uh, she went home as a immature believer. But thanks be to God, she no longer is. When we came to this point, we were dealing with matters that my mom would not really understand. A non, a person who's not well versed in the Old Testament wouldn't miss the depth and the wealth of the items that John lists. And, and so, um, it might challenge some of us. It challenged me as I started going through and exegeting these passages in my mom's presence. And we kind of worked through it on the fly. And it was a little challenging for her. But for me, it was actually very uh, edifying. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that you'll see some great benefit in it. The, the key is is... We're wrapping up with chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. And basically what we have in these visions is a a fulfillment and a pointing back to Ezekiel's revelation and Daniel's and Isaiah's and pointing to things that the audience the seven churches that received this letter, these were all things that they were looking towards the completion. And so what we're going to, we're going to look at today is we're going to look at each of those items that is listed by John, and then we're going to see what significance that had for the audience as well as what significance does that have for us. And um, so with that being said, let's move on. Before I do, again, the, the underlying purpose of Paul's vision and of John's vision for us is to equip us to overcome, to be overcomers, to be able to endure through hardships and suffering. And, and of course, uh, in Paul's lesson, we covered that in detail where God took him to this, to, having to experience it and to prepare him for all the suffering that he would endure. So now we we move to items that John has identified. We read through those, and so we're going to deal with them one at a time. And I mentioned overcomers, so that's a perfect segue. An overcomer being one who perseveres to the end, one who stays obedient and perseveres to the end, trusting in the Lord and not trusting in what is in the seen world. 
So the very first item that we have that will be in heaven is the saints. Now, you might ask, where did I get that from? And so I got that from verse 2, where John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Well, what do we know about bride? What do we know when the Bible refers to the bride? What's it referring to? The church, to the saints, right? So we have this, and this is where, you know, half of the Christian world goes off the edge. We have this vision where New Jerusalem is really the church, the saints, the saints of God. And by the way, that should be pretty comforting. If you're going through trials, the first thing you want to know is, am I going to be there? <laughs> and then what is going to be there and, and what's not going to be there? And we covered, we covered what's not going to be there now and what is going to be there. Uh, and this would be, you know, this would be very familiar language to that audience. Um, for example, the, um, when you think of the comfort to a first century Jew of knowing that they were going to dwell in the house of the Lord. We, you know, this conjures up a very familiar verse that we're aware of, uh, Psalm 23, uh, 27, verse 4, where David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. This was the longing for the first century Jew. It's a longing that we have, but ours has been expanded upon But just with what they had, the context with what they had, that longing is no different between the, you know, the first century Jew and us. And so we have the saints are going to be present there. Um, for those, you know, so what I did with this with my mom was it was a chance to say, let's talk about people in our family and friends that you know are going to be there. And so we spent time interacting. Now I I put these, I, I, I will salt our discussion today and tomorrow as I have in the past with these discussions with my mom. And the whole whole purpose of that is, as the title implies, picturing heaven for your soul, the more that we can interact with the text, the more that we can interact with one another on items that causes us to draw a mental picture, uh, the more efficacious it will be in giving us the strength to endure hardship, giving us the ability to persevere uh, in trials and, and tribulations. The second item, the river of the water of life. The opening verse in chapter 22 combines the prophetic 
pictures of a spring of living water flowing out of the later day Jerusalem and its temple. Which happens, by the way, to also be present in Ezekiel, if you want, if you're taking notes, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 9, and Zechariah 14, 8. Both portray and give reference to, and I'll give you the actual quote from Ezekiel, uh, of life-giving water. Every, from Ezekiel 47, 9, everything on which the river will come will live. And that sounds reminiscent of both the Garden of Eden as well as later on where we see that the river of life on both banks of the river of life are trees of life that provide, and we'll get to that in a moment, provide healing leaves. So in Ezekiel, the healing came from the river. In John, the river provides life to the trees of life that give healing in their, in their um, leaves. This would go unnoticed by most of us unless we really spend a lot of time uh, in our Old Testament. For the first century, Jew was very powerful and meaningful and uh, as it should be for us as well. <laughs> I'm not doing this to, to illustrate, but I am thirsty. Okay, verse 21.6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Uh, verse tw- uh, 22.1 says, then the angel showed me the river of, of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And But let's tie this back, let's look at, at a few other passages. Isaiah 42.3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 12.3 With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55 Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then, of course, we could uh, keep going. Um, on John, we know uh, when Jesus met with the woman on the well, he says, if you knew the gift of God, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and read the whole passage. The woman from Samaria came to drink the water, and Jesus said to her, give me drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, give me drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I'm drinking smart water. I'd rather have the living water. But anyway, this uh, 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water from, and the well is deep. Where do I go for the living water? And he's, Are you any greater than my father Jacob? He gave us well to drink and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty. So as you can see, and, you know, we could go on. I mean, there's so many references to thirst, um, and it's fitting. Our very first, the song for our call to worship today, where's Susan? Is she? Oh. Pardon me? Yeah, all who are thirsty. So God was kind of tying several of the songs from this this service, uh, our worship service today, are really going to have, I hope, even more meaning to you as a result of today. But we're dealing with a, we understand what physical thirst is. I mean, we, you know, we become parched, our, our, our uh, lips become chapped, and our body starts telling us that we need to replenish. We need to put water in to sustain our body. But there's also another thirst, and it's a greater thirst that both the Jews and us have in common. All who are created in his image have in common, and that is that thirst to be home. That thirst to be forever in the presence of the Lord. And so the references here uh, continue to point to this yearning, the 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 yearning that you and I have, the yearning that the first century Jews had, is the same, and that is we're not home. We're not, we are sojourners. And as sojourners, we need to, um, constantly, you know, drink from wells and what have you. Uh, and we need, and things are not exactly the way they should be. But, what we have here and what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, as well as what John is saying, is at the consummation, when we're in heaven, that thirst will be no more. No more thirst. I'm not just, I'm not talking about physical thirst. I'm talking about the, the thirst that we have for things like justice. The, uh, end, end of sin. You know. And the whole list of all the things that we went through last week, as far as, you know, pain and suffering and illness, broken relationships, et cetera, et cetera, we thirst. We thirst for a world because we were created for the world to come. And that thirst is to do one thing. It's to point us to our need for a Savior. Point us to our need for the one who will wipe away our tears, who will provide the waters, uh, living waters. And, and so that's the whole purpose here. And so again, uh, in John's letter, he's showing the first century church, pointing them to things that they would understand clearly from Scripture as being God's consummation, God's completion of that which he began. He, be, he began 
with a river in, in the garden, and he ends with a river in Revelation that comes, that flows out of the city as opposed to out of the, out of the, uh, garden. Next one, healing fruit. I don't know how many times um, I would have given everything I had for healing fruit. <laughs> Both when I was caring for people who are hurting and suffering, uh, in pain, ill, or even when I was the same, healing fruit. And we I already touched on this a little bit, that the river of life, the water of life, that flows through the city on both sides of its banks are the tree of life, which its leaves are good for what? Healing. Again, very much like Ezekiel, the the hearers of this would have recognized the language almost verbatim from, from Ezekiel, with the exception of the nuance that the river of life uh, in uh, Ezekiel, the river of life brings healing. Here, it brings living. It brings life, which feeds the trees that provide the leaves that heal. And in Ezekiel forty-seven eight through nine and twelve, it basically uses the word purifies. It literally says it heals much of the water. Uh, the pure river uh, is what is called in Revelation 20, gives life to the creatures swimming in it and causes trees to grow and leaves that are for healing. And so we have this, um, if you would, think about being in the audience or being in the audience when these letters were read back then. Again, we're, we're dealing with a time in history when the greater part of the church was going through persecution. And there was a great need of healing. I mean, if you look at our nation, there's a great need for healing. We look at, you know, you know, oftentimes we think of physical healing, but you just think of the relational healing that, that, that we need in our church, we need in our city, we need in our country. And so, the, the importance of this healing fruit is, again, what are we, what are we uh, craving? We're craving healing. We're craving that the relationships that, that we encounter, that we deal with, that are broken would be healed, that our loved ones would be healed. We're, you know, all of these things are set in tension because they're set in tension because we're not, we're not there yet. So it's just a reminder that we're in the already but the not yet. Okay, the next in John's list is the Lamb of God. We're not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I'm going to spend all of next week on it. But from the text, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads.
I mentioned a while back about when we were talking about No More Tears and how intimate it is to have Jesus wipe away your tear. What's also going to be very intimate is when you come face to face with him. Everything that has ever been a source of pain, suffering, uh, anxiety, uh, craving will be washed away. It will be washed away. The centerpiece of why heaven is heaven is that that's where the Lamb is. And when we're greeted by the Lamb, everything, that knot that's in your stomach right now from whatever else is going on in your life, will be gone. It will be gone. The infirmities that you're dealing with, gone. Broken relationships, gone. I mean, just keep going. And so this is what we're seeing in the lists of items that John has given us is items that there was a, a um, overwhelming source of anxiety because we were created for these things and, and the world doesn't provide it. It does not provide it. Um, the question is, is, does that mean there will be no more tears of joy? I don't know. I will tell you one thing. Heaven will be unmitigated joy. Unmitigated joy. So we'll be a bunch of crybabies if there's tears of joy. <laughs> there will be lots of joy in heaven. But that which causes those tears, which is the pain, the sorrow, uh, the mourning, will be no more. And again, we're going to cover the Lamb of God in great detail next week. Next item, something we're about to participate in, corporate worship. There'll be worship. To the first century Jew, the biggest longing was what? To go to the temple, right? To worship, to worship in the presence of God. What John is giving us here is the centerpiece. Obviously, the centerpiece is the Lamb of God. And in his presence, we can do nothing but worship. That's what we're here for today, is to worship, is to Come into his presence. As we prepare to go into his presence here, we're, we're trusting in his presence because that's what he says that he, he is here. When we come into his presence in heaven, we will behold him 
in all of his glory. And we will have no, no ability not to. Sorry for the double negative. No ability not to give him constant worship. I know as a child, I started thinking, if heaven is all about worship, why do I want to go? Because I was bored with worship. Until the idols of my heart were dealt with. Now, to each of us, I'm sure, in varying degrees, the centerpiece of our week is what we're about to do. Our entire eternity will be doing that. So if you're a little bit bored with worship, uh, better get a checkup from the neck up. Okay, next one and a big one is the wedding feast of the Lamb. We all like weddings, right? Everyone likes weddings. And parties. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'm not a big queen follower. And I don't mean the, the group, the rock group queen. I'm talking about the queen of England. Okay. But for those who are, they are enamored in all the pomp and circumstance that goes, surrounds this giant event that takes place over days and has the minds and attentions of everyone. We're talking about a wedding feast where each of us are being prepared right now as brides. Because we are the bride of Christ. The challenges that we encounter are all being used as a means to prepare us to be that perfect bride. Now, we know that brides oftentimes spend lots of time and energy um, being made perfect for the time that they walk down the aisle. I got news for you. We will be made perfect. But the celebration... Think about the celebration. We like celebrating, right? How am I doing time-wise? See if I can meander a little bit. Nope, I can't. Okay. Um, we all like to celebrate. But this is going to be the celebration in all celebrations. I'll give you one little tidbit. Uh, Nathan Lewis, who is, uh, was my pastor in Beaverton, Oregon, um, Every time he uh, fenced the table for the Lord's Supper, he would draw up a tear when he was serving the wine because he would say, Jesus said, I will not taste of this drink until you're with me. Now, I t- terrible paraphrase, so don't hold me to that. But his point was, and he would tear up. Now, for those of us who enjoy our wine... Jesus is going without the best wine until we're there. It's going to be a big celebration. It's interesting that the very first, the very first miracle Jesus does is turning water to wine at a wedding. And what the wine will taste like, who knows? It's going to be insane. Um, 
But the, the, what's going to be insane about it though is we're going, we're going to be celebrating all of us together. We, you know, we, each one of us knows a little bit about each other and the challenges we're dealing with. And we all carry a little bit of that burden for each other. Those burdens will all be gone. So not only will mine be gone, but yours will be gone. And so we'll be able to celebrate in our fullness better than we've ever, ever, ever been able to celebrate before. I will tell you with this visual, what I like about it is we have lots of weddings all the time. And so whenever we have weddings or when I take a drink or whatever, I'm always reminded of what's in store for us. Again, the more we can find tags or indexes in our mind to to draw us back to Scripture, uh, just as in Deuteronomy dealt with putting God's word on our doorposts and uh, you know on on our foreheads, so that we can constantly be reminded that this is not our home. Okay, and his bride. We've already covered that, so I'll, I'll skim, skim that, other than just to reinforce the fact that the bride that is being referred to is the New Jerusalem. The unveiled face of God. In other words, we're going to see God in all of his glory. Um... I'm a football fan, and I'm not going to be rubbing it in too much, but my, my team, the Gators, won last night. And, and there's something about sharing in the glory of something that you have an emotional attachment to. Our greatest emotional attachment is to God. When we behold his glory, all things will be made new in us. All things will be made new in us. Last but not least. Okay. The son of righteousness. And it's spelled S-U-N. I'll just use an R because I'm too slow when it's way down there. Isaiah 60, 19 says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. <coughs> Revelation 21, 23, we read, And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord, a glory of God, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then Malachi 4.2, which is where we first see the reference to the Son of Righteousness, uh, states, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, Son spelt with the S-U-N of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. See, the hardest part about teaching anything on heaven is we don't have any real frame of reference 
We don't have a lot of frame of reference of what's there because all things are going to be made new. So, so just like w- when we read the Old Testament and we see a shadow of that which is fulfilled in Christ, so much of what we're dealing with today in our lives is still a shadow of what is to come. And, and, um, and that's why we're called to persevere in faith. So, in conclusion, let me say one more thing on the sun. We're dealing with the, the juxtaposition of the seen world and the unseen world. We're given this term, the sun, as in the sun above, of righteousness. The sun on a horizontal plane is at the center of our universe. Here it refers to giving light, but it's also at the center of our universe. The sun of righteousness, the unseen world, will be the center, is the center today, but will be the center of all things as well. And so I enjoy that juxtaposition of the two um, because in the center, the center of everything will be Christ. And that will give us, that will be the source for all of our joy, everlasting joy, because we long for that. That's what we were created for. We long to be forever in his presence. Okay, so John's vision basically serves as a guarantee that if the readers obey and persevere, they will indeed spend eternity before the face of God. And that, again, is the whole purpose of John's vision was to enable and equip the saints to persevere through the trials and tribulations that they were going to encounter. In contrast, we read, we studied last week where Paul was given the same vision, not to communicate to us so that we could, we could, uh, apply that, but to enable and equip him to be able to endure all the hardships and all the trials. And by the way, all of those hardships and trials did what? They revealed his faith to an unbelieving world. And that's what he's, that's where we're called. We're called into that same, that same tension. And so as we wrap up this week with John's vision, again, its whole purpose is to show us that Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that all within time, that he's outside of time, all within time, was created by him. And that everything in time is out, is underneath his sovereign control. And I got news for you. When, when it comes time to trial, we need that anchor. We talked a lot about the anchor, uh, in heaven. Our anchor in heaven is, is Jesus knowing that, um, At some point in time, 
Let me back up. Knowing that he's sovereign, that whatever circumstances you find yourself in, they're not outside of his reach. And he's permitting them for his purpose. And he's sovereign over every little detail. Now this, the first century church knew. They understood God's sovereignty. And all of this pointed to it so that they could have comfort that what he began in the garden, he will complete. And that's, again, the reference to the Alpha Omega and all these other um, terms that are being used were something that pointed to the Old Testament saint and the first century saint to be able to take comfort and stand fast under persecution. Okay, I know that was the hardest one that we'll go through. Um, Next week is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to deal with the third eyewitness, Jesus, uh, and it won't be as dealing as much with metaphors and and uh, uh, prophetic language. So let's pray. Father God, we we thank you that um, as we prepare to enter into corporate worship, that you're even now preparing our hearts for worship. And Father, I pray that as we go into worship, that these that your word that we've studied this morning will have even greater meaning, that your spirit uh, will, will cause our hearts to gravitate towards the items um, that are present in heaven. Most importantly, the one who is present in heaven. All the other will not matter one iota compared to being forever before your face. And so, Father, we long for that. And so as we enter into worship, we pray that you would uh, enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.